0: Forever Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual Public Intellectual is supported by its listeners So if you would like this podcast to continue into the future You can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual And be wooed by the usual array of bonus materials And thank you to all of the current supporters And the supporters of the past and the supporters of the future, hopefully, it's really appreciated. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. I was researching a piece for The Baffler about goop and other charlatan healing empires, and it doesn't take long to notice when you're doing this research that the history of medicine is a history of not giving a shit about women. If you present as female, then your pain, your history of illness, your subjective reality is going to be taken a lot less seriously. Study after study has shown this anecdote after anecdote. And what does it mean anyway to be embodied in the current American healthcare crisis? If we all recognize that between insurance companies and patriarchal medicine and surgical overreach and depersonalized everything, that to be sick at all, but even more in a chronic state, is to live in a precarious reality. You're always falling into the gaps between care, shuffled between practitioners, and constantly being pitched woo at by the charlatans and con men who prey on the ill. So I wanted to talk to Johanna Hedva. They have been writing a series of pieces on illness called This Earth, Our Hospital, including the much-referenced and much-loved essay, Sick Woman Theory. And we discuss, among other things, why illness memoirs are such a big seller right now, why one shouldn't capitalize on a moment, even when it's convenient and profitable, and the difference a well-structured system of healthcare can make in a life. (laughs) In this piece, Letter to a Young Doctor, you write about the word healing um, and what that could mean in a, this sort of medicalized space. And I was struck by it because the, it's like the medical world doesn't believe in healing anymore. They believe in maintenance. They want, they want, because that's what makes them more money is if you just have problems endlessly until you're dead. Um and the only people that use the word healing anymore are the con men and the sort of Gwyneth Paltrow uh, world of, um, of, of natural healing. Um, so I wanted to start the conversation about what the word sort of healing means to you and uh, how it came about uh, from that piece.
1: Um, yeah, well, it's very rare when a doctor will talk to you about healing. Like, usually, when you get some kind of diagnosis, um, they don't say, Okay, now we're going to discuss your healing plan. They talk about your treatment plan. Um, and I don't know, I find like it's also you run into this wall just if you get a diagnosis that has an incurability thing with it chronic illness, a disability, something like this. So it's like, I mean, when I was writing that piece, I was really kind of um, desperately trying to figure out what healing would even mean for myself, for, you know, people that I know in the crip community. And it is true. Like the only time I was ever hearing it was in some kind of... Like, I don't want to call them charlatans but kind of like snake oil salesmen sure. <laughs> you know and a lot about like spiritual healing especially has such ableism in it it's like well you were attracting your abuser to you through karma or some kind of bullshit like that so i kind of you know started with this idea i also was hearing a lot of the about the etymology of healing being whole Um, And how it's a return to wholeness and when you can heal yourself, you're whole again. And that just seemed really like not at all what I was experiencing and quite incorrect. Like I was like, well, I've never been whole and I actually don't think that it's even possible. So to me, it seemed like it was much more about finding ways to have space for all the different You know, pieces that were never going to be integrated. Um, Yeah, something like this. And I, and, you know, it's rare when you find a medical uh, expert or doctor or practitioner or something that is on the same page as that Mm -hmm. with
0: you. And so you sort of talked about your experience in the American health system with. Uh, limited access to um well funds and healthcare uh, of any kind and i kind of wanted to talk to you about you know when i moved to germany in, in 2009 um the nationalized healthcare system was a revelation to yeah. me um and so i wanted to talk to you about that as well like now that you're living in germany and you have access to this um not that you the madness of america is sort of see increasingly clear to everybody of just how broken and disgusting really it is but how it actually works here is kind of i think um and and uh people should know more about what it actually yeah. is like to live uh in a system like this
1: yeah, I mean, I always try to say, I always try to present it as like I'm I'm born and raised in Los Angeles and lived there my entire life. The longest I'd ever been away from LA was 4 months. And my entire family is there, my community, my friends, everything was there. But I didn't have health care. And it was so precarious of a situation just day to day. I didn't know if my insurance was going to cover my medication the next time I went to pick up my refill. Like, you know, getting uh, to the front of the counter at the pharmacy and having them say, oh, it's not covered anymore. That'll be $800 as your copay or whatever. Um, So my partner who I met in Los Angeles is German. And at some point he was kind of like looking around. We had been living there for a few years and he was like, how, we're, we're not going to be able to live if we stay here. So I'm very lucky in the sense that through him, I was able to move here and get the visa and become part of the healthcare system. But like here, like the story that I always tell my friends about how different the German healthcare system is, is when I came here, I got my general practitioner and she was like, you know, I'd like to see you once a month just to check in. You have so many things going on. It's going to be a lot of like finding what's right, you know, for you and it'll take us some time and I want us to get to know each other. So I started to see her about once a month and I had made an appointment for November like the day after the election in 2016 and I kind of had forgotten that it would be the day after the election. Mm-hmm. So when I went there on that day to my regular appointment, I was like just devastated and Overwhelmed and I couldn't really talk. And I sit down in her office and she's like, How are you coping? (laughs) And she was completely serious. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Well, I'm a mess, you know. And she was like, If you need anything during this time, you can call us. You can call me. Like, (laughs) she was like, You can make an appointment. You can just walk in. Mm -hmm. And she was very serious about it. She was like, You know, because we understand how. The political condition, you know, of your environment will affect your health. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of ways that the German healthcare system has supported my whole life—not just like this one diagnosis that I might have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, the other thing that I'm always excited about and tell everybody about with my general practitioner is she also wanted to know about me as a person. So she's like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm a writer." And she reads, the first thing out of her mouth was, oh, do you know this writer that I really like, Anna Kavan? (laughs) And I was so stunned. And so anyway, you know, now I've been seeing her for like almost three years. She's read all my work. We talk about it when I go in there. Um, So... It's kind of been this interesting adjustment because here in Germany, I don't really have any friends. I have no family. I don't really have a community in in a social way, but I have the most amazing healthcare and support. Mm -hmm. So when I'm here, I'm actually quite healthy in the sense of my capacity is is much bigger and I can do a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's sort of still baffling to me that it's also available more or less for free.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and it seems there is, it's not just the fact that the health insurance is good and it covers a lot. There's a different understanding of what care is. Because, right. um, you know, I had to have surgery here when I first moved here. And, they, you know, they sent me, they were incredibly kind to me through the entire process because I was scared out of my mind because I never been under general anesthesia before mm-hmm. but then when they when i was leaving they gave me you know for the aftercare um i one tylenol <laughs> right um for pain and he's like no you need to you need to feel your pain because that will tell you if something is wrong i was like i don't, I don't know if this is <laughs> That's, it's, uh, i don't know if i agree with this part of the german system um, yeah <laughs> but then having a procedure in america where the, the, it was totally um uh um dehumanizing and and kind of horrific and then they gave me like a bottle of 60 codeine to right, take right. with me after yeah yeah it's a different different idea of what it means to take care of somebody
1: yeah i mean one other thing that that has been my experience is because i have been in the hospital before i'm assigned social workers and because some of my hospital hospitalizations have been because of mental illnesses The social workers in, or at least in the system that I'm a part of are kind of, the system is built for them to be part of my life so as to prevent me from having to go to the hospital if I have a crisis. Mm -hmm. So they act as kind of this middle stage, which is completely non-existent in America, where say for example, I am having some kind of crisis uh, mental Mental illness crisis. I can go there, there's a house where I could stay, I could like cook in that kitchen with them. I could stay there overnight if I needed that. And the main thing that they've been doing in, in working with me is building my care network here. So the first question they ask is, so who's in your care network? Who's in your support system? And what they mean is like your friends, your family, your therapists, who they wanted to know all of my doctors. They wanted to know all my friends who are available if I need help. Mm-hmm. Like and 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 not just like we talked about it for 30 minutes. Like for a year, we would draw it on the board. They had this giant piece of paper that they kept for me that was like a, a constellation of my care network. So when I think about that, like that's one of the ways that the German healthcare system approaches care is that it is social mm-hmm. and that it is like an interdependency. The other thing that, you know, that they do here that is like completely, I think, illegal in America is that they put you in touch with other patients mm-hmm. who are going through similar things. So like at some point, my, one of my social workers, who by the way, is also into astrology, <laughs> And so we talk about astrology all the time. Excellent. Um, she's a Scorpio rising. <laughs> um, she was like, she pulled me aside one day, and she's like, "Would you be interested in meeting somebody else who is also one of our uh, patients?" And we think that you two would get along. You have a lot of similar like things going on, and and also just kind of sensibilities. And I was like, "Sure, that sounds nice." Like this isn't uh, this would be illegal in America. Yeah. And when I met this person, they like they were wearing blue lipstick and they were talking about like activism stuff. They had just come from some workshop, activist workshop. So things like that where you don't feel so isolated because of your conditions but actually supported and seen because of them mm-hmm. is something that I've only experienced
0: here. Um, I wanted to talk, and this is too personal, Um, feel free not to answer but this about getting access to something like this through a partner so I recently married somebody and because of that like his immigration situation is vastly improved Mm -hmm. right and his future sort of like opened up to him in a way that you sort of being partnered with somebody from Germany and suddenly you have access to this thing that most people aren't going to have access to because they haven't they don't that luck of they just didn't meet their you know the person they needed to give this to them which makes me so much more um, angry I was already very angry about the sort of limitation of rights distributed through what is supposed to be a love relationship but now that um we're taking advantage of it. It makes me even more angry. Yeah. Everybody who can't. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to talk. A yeah, about Yeah, I feel that. the same
1: way. I try to take every opportunity I can to talk about my enormous privilege and being able to marry this person. I mean, it helps that we also like had been in a rela- We are in a relationship and love each other. But we were against marriage. I mean, politically, um, we don't have children. We don't plan on having children. Also, f- like for a pat- particular kind of reason um that is more political rather than like a personal decision Mm -hmm. um so when the marriage thing was sort of an option uh all of a sudden uh basically to get health care um we did it and um the only reason we could do it is because we pass as a hetero couple Mm -hmm. um so there's just enormous privilege in that. And the other thing that, like, you know, is that we, uh, like, when I went to go get my visa at the German embassy or consulate or whatever it's called, you know, there's a line for basically people that aren't white Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a line for everybody else. And so I was able to be, because also if you're immigrating to Germany from America, the process is very simple Mm -hmm. if you're immigrating from a country you know if you're a refugee or if you're from africa you know the process is a nightmare and probably won't even happen Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so yeah there's just enormous privilege that we've been able to uh utilize yeah to be here
0: yeah and it has a sort of like weird it adds a sort of weird dynamic to the relationship i think um when when you are using the state in this specific way at least for me like um to be really in love and devoted to this person and yet um marrying and and then suddenly sort of granted benefits it's 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 a weird thing to bring into a relationship i think but Um, yeah yeah um so going back to the sort of like um the subject of illness (laughs) um we are sort of awash in right now the illness memoir Mm -hmm. um and also the illness um autobiographical documentary Netflix Mm -hmm. is filled with them (laughs) um as i was sort of researching for the piece just lost you know days of my life to these um but um but yeah so you were sort of you were talking about you were um maybe going to write a piece about the sort of illness memoir but i mean what is your we, and we don't have to talk about specific ones but the sort of common failings of them because i find most of them entirely objectionable or not entirely but mostly objectionable.
1: Yeah. yeah, I have very strong opinions about all of this and I keep getting asked about my opinion and um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I' you know I'm sorry to disappoint some people maybe in what I'm about to say, but I get very nervous when illness m- memoirs, Um, happen. And, And in general, there's a kind of trend right now around chronic illness and disability in the art world and in publishing. And I just get very nervous about them when they don't talk about ableism and when they reduce everything to an individual's experience. So, you know, obviously more representation and better representation of this kind of thing is important. Having disabled artists have, you know, platforms and Support and visibility is very important, but it's not like visibility is not enough Mm -hmm. if there isn't some kind of actual Structural change that addresses ableism. So like here's an example I always get invited to speak uh, on the subject of chronic illness at venues that are like not accessible or like you know like or or i get invitations from people from organizers who actually haven't given one kind of thought to how can we support this person you know like i'm disabled if you're going to bring me to another country you know fly me across an ocean to speak somewhere there's certain things that are going to have to happen for that to take place mm-hmm. just in terms of supporting my body and supporting my you know life mm-hmm. So, that's been my experience, and I can only imagine that it's just sort of happening to <laughs> I mean everybody who who is writing about these things are working with them in, in their own you know artwork or, or writing or something. and I just I mean, I can only hope that um, there is some kind of progress toward understanding ableism and how having a trendy moment and bringing visibility to certain people is is not enough mm-hmm. it has to be a complete you know it like it's not enough to just invite somebody to keynote at your conference like you have to have an understanding of how that entire conference uh can support you know disability mm-hmm. so i mean one of the things just like in like my practice right now because i've kind of had a lot of um trial and error with this in recent in the last like two years is for now my idea is that i'm grading on improvement because i realized that i was just getting really angry right off you know like from the jump i would get an email or an invitation and everything would be you know there would be like ableist language in there and they wouldn't have anything um that actually made it possible for me to attend so now, though, I've decided that if you know, if the organization and the institution that has the power to support me actually is interested in changing and listening and understanding how they might be, you know, perpetrating ableism, like if they're willing to address those things, then that then I feel very, um, I feel like less angry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm grading on improvement
0: now. Um, yeah, and it's shocking to me how often money is left out of so many of these yeah. conversations <laughs> as well that um, – so watching I was watching this one particular uh, documentary of, of a woman documenting her her illness and her attempts to treat herself because um, there's no real treatment plan for what she has. Um, and it was just so much equipment and so much like kale or you know, organic kale being pulled out of Whole Foods bags. And I was just like, at, at no point are are you going to talk to me about, um, how much is this costing you, and yeah. your insurance, or anything? And um, yeah. it never came up. And it seems like such a huge part of our reality is, um, you know, uh, hospital bills and finding out things aren't covered and not being able to have a, a specialist at all, like on our insurance and having right, to pay out right. of pocket, mm-hmm. and all these things. Um, that the fact that so much, so many of these illness memoirs don't even bring it up, I find, I find um hilarious a little
1: yeah i mean maybe i should say also that like at this current moment i'm very pessimistic and and even nihilistic about this kind of thing so like recently i was re-watching the movie elysium which is um the director who made district nine's like big but first big budget hollywood movie sure um not necessarily a great movie but it's like a vision of the future where health is a currency mm-hmm. and only the wealthy have access to it. And so, you know, yeah, I kind of feel like that's true. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's already happening. Like, like if you're wealthy, then you, you know, I mean, what is like there's like even things about like Elon Musk is like developing like cures for death.
0: oh good oh good you know
1: what i mean but like but like some of us like just can't even afford like our basic medication to stay alive or like or even like a trip to the doctor in america can cost you more than you can afford so to me like that's part of this whole thing with the institutional and systemic kind of situation around ableism like like one of the things I noticed with this current trend of disability is that like all these institutions now are saying that they have this like kind of resources to support me mm-hmm. and my little life and my little project. But that means that they also have a lot of power over me. And and you know as much as I can I you know you can try to like work within that system, but it is a very individualizing Thing It's like you, we're going to bring you and only you to talk about this and we're not going to pay you enough and your health will be ruined like a week after because there isn't like any accessibility in the space, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of pessimistic about it at the moment and I really think the only way we can have any agency in this sort of period is to work, you know, together. Like, crip community, like, the like the people that I count among my crip community are, like, the only reason I can do things mm-hmm. in public, really, around this work. Yeah.
0: So the pieces that you've been writing about um, health and sickness, um, I guess, well, when you're approaching that, are you sort of... Um, I guess what's, what's the consideration? What's the sort of like um, the intention um, that you're trying to work through with the pieces?
1: Like what's at stake? Yeah. Um, well, it's sort of changed. I mean, Sick Woman Theory, when I first wrote that piece, it, I was like a different person than I am now. It was many years ago and i really even though that piece is such a bombastic pontificating piece i was literally writing it from the most fragile place and i was imagining that only my friends were going to read it and it came out of me and and you know some folks like sitting around and being like how are we going to fucking live you know like it was really just felt like you know that was the beginning of that piece was you know me and my friends just wondering what was going to happen to us and um, so the, the concerns of that piece were, were really from this place of just sort of desperate. And I'm a Sagittarius rising. So I was like, well, we're gonna pontificate and make a manifesto and bang, you know? like. <laughs> so to me, that piece is such a sad rising voice. Mm-hmm. Um, also Saturn was in my first house at the time. So that's what that piece sounds like to yeah, me. It's yeah. like, you know, who are we? And <laughs> really <laughs> intense. Um, now, you know, things have kind of <laughs> things have kind of shifted, especially because I'm now in this weird position of like having that piece have such an impact that it had. Um, Letter to a Young Doctor was was also kind of written in a desperate, fragile place, but from a very different. It didn't feel like pontification was going to help. Um, and it really felt actually like the only thing that would help is if I try to talk to one person. And, and that person, you know, the, um, the addressee in that piece was real. Um, it was a young medical student who had written to me, and she was about to graduate, and she had all these questions. And it really felt like answering her and trying to come to some kind of conversation between us was like what I could try to do now. At the moment where I am is um, uh, like, I've kind of just taken a step back from writing these pieces and and working on this project because I don't actually want to capitalize on the moment. I don't want to be part of that. Um, And I really want to figure out a way to write about these bigger systemic issues. So I'm just sort of taking a, a little pause um, from working on new writing around illness um, and trying to think of different ways to approach it.
0: Is it Neptune and Pisces? Is that why we have all the illness memoirs? Is that why? I
1: think that's also why astrology is so big and poetry is so big and dance is like finally legitimated like (laughs) it's like neptune and pisces
0: yeah yeah the neptune and pisces thing i'm ambivalent about just because of all the pictures of crystals on my instagram but
1: um i know it is quite strange like i mean and it's also strange for me because i grew up in this like maybe this is a good segue i grew up my mother and my aunt were witches but they were like not going around and talking about it to people and it, was, it wasn't shameful, but it was definitely like something I didn't want to share because it may get me taunted or teased or something. Sure. So, you know, when I grew up, there were crystals everywhere and little spells and little altars and every full moon we had to go outside and like pull our energy from the moon and da-da-da. And, you know, at some point I was really embarrassed about all of this mm-hmm. It's like where I had come from. And... When I was like a teenager, at some point, I decided I wanted to be an intellectual. And so I could not have this on my record, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. So I had to like, you know, pretend that I I just really rejected it all. So it's just funny to me that now it's having such a resurgence. And it's this kind of almost source of pride and um, also trendy. Also yeah. lots of products you can buy. Like that was the other thing. My my mom and my aunt, like they didn't have money for expensive crystals and you know ceremonies that would initiate them into some kind of thing they were very much just doing this kind of kitchen witch style folk magic making it up as they went along
0: yeah now you can get those monthly like subscription boxes yeah like witch boxes just like random witchy shit that shows up once a (laughs) month for 25 dollars yeah yeah um, so talk to me about not capitalizing on this moment So it seems like you're in tune with Neptune and Pisces and so like in all these various ways that you could sort of you know be be the spokesperson for Neptune and Pisces moment between the illness memoirs and the and the and the witchiness um what is it you know what is it in you that's making you, reject uh capitalizing
1: well in astro terms it's because my south node is on the rising with uranus so it's like i just been deeply deeply uncomfortable with having a public persona at all um but you know i mean there are a few reasons mainly ethically i don't think there should be a spokesperson like just in general Mm -hmm. i think that the idea of all of these kinds of Mm -hmm. movements around you know activism against oppression, the idea is that it has to be social. It can't be one you know hero, and that the idea of the leader of the movement or the spokesperson is a very patriarchal you know one, mm-hmm. and also it rehistoricizes shit. that's like not what actually happened, and we're kind of seeing that now in the way that the civil rights moment is being talked about and social medialized. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, well, we have, you know, only Malcolm X to thank. You know, it's like, no, you know, like that's not that's not true at all, you know, and it's, it's much more of a collective thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the other thing is that I have had other projects that have been in the works longer than the Sick Woman Theory um, This Earth, Our Hospital project, and those I wanted to really focus on, and one of them is, you know, kind of getting to... Um, An end point soon, so it just felt like I needed to finish those things um, before I started. You know, this other thing. Also, I kind of just wanted to be older Mm. to to write about these things because *Sick Woman Theory* was really like the the first time I had ever written like that, Mm. dealt with those things, put like kind of memoiristic things into a critical essay. Like, it was the first time. So I kind of would like to learn a bit more about how to do that kind of writing. Yeah. And I'd rather not have all those learning moments happen in public. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, so you wrote this piece um, about your moon and cancer in the eighth house um, that I found incredibly inspiring in the way of oh you can write about astrology in this way um not just in a in a you know um uh taking it seriously from an intellectual standpoint because i I do feel like that's happening more now Mm -hmm. but in a purely sort of literary sense Mm -hmm. it really sort of expanded um my idea of um how how I could write about astrology in my own work um so I mean is your when we met the other time you said all you need to know about a person is what their moon is doing um <laughs> yeah so uh, so how how often you know has have you thought about your 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 moon and cancer in the eighth? oh house? my
1: god it explains everything I think <laughs> I mean I really think that it I mean I should say this um I'm my friend, uh, Constantina Zavitsanos, who also uh, is an astrologer, artist, thinker, you know, brilliant, brilliant mind. When they first saw my work, they just clocked me. We had never met before. And they wrote me and and they were like, I like your work. I feel like we're dealing with a lot of the same stuff. By the way, are you a sad rising? <laughs> I was like <laughs> savagely dragged by this. <laughs> um, I feel like anybody who knows about astrology, if they read my work, they can tell that I have a moon and cancer in the eighth and a fucking Mars retro and in the 12th. Mm. So to me, I'm like, this is just right out there. Um, but I think that the thing for me that astrology does, because it's it's what I do as a, as a day job, um, even though I don't really kind of like advertise this publicly, but I've been reading professionally for five years. And to me, the thing that is so powerful and cool about astrology is that it's a storytelling device. And because it is a Western, the kind that we know about is a Western project, particularly an ancient Greek project mm-hmm. we have all I mean which comes with the good and the bad I mean it is colonial and imperial and all of that because of its um, because it's an ancient Greek project um but the way that it works with archetypes and myth and these stories kind of getting told and retold and you know the very kind of heart of astrology is like this sort of articulating a cycle mm-hmm. that to me is like a narrative it's just a narrative. Tool. Mm-hmm. And so I think in terms of astrology 100%. And it's almost like a code switch, like I have to kind of turn it off sometimes. But lately I've been not turning it off and it's been coming into my work more. And I mean, it's how I talk and think in my regular life. Mm-hmm. So, also with that piece, Moon and Cancer in the Eighth House, that essay, it really was about how the thing I think that returned me to astrology was when I was going through my you know, fucking Saturn return and I started to get all my family's charts just because I was like curious mm-hmm. and I was having some things in my health that were returning like that I had known my mother had had and my grandmother had had And when I got everybody's charts on that side, they were all moon and cancer. And that just made, it just somehow like kind of articulated something that other forms of knowledge, medical stuff, genetic stuff, whatever, didn't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I find it to be an incredibly useful tool that way.
0: Yeah. It's funny you think that it's obvious. I always feel like it's obvious that um, i have saturn venus conjunct like i know that is so
1: wild (laughs) it's just like uh, everybody should just
0: assume that that's what's going on with me explains everything
1: it does i mean no shade but it really does
0: yeah yeah Um, (laughs) um so you were talking about you did an astrological reading for one of your characters, yes, um for this book on hell, which is so fantastic um Thank yeah, you. so um how how detailed get it did it get
1: um oh his chart is is every everything about it, even the deccans mm-hmm. um is. Specific is it's thought out and it took me a long time to figure out because I wrote it before. I mean, I knew he was an Aries, but I that was about it. That was as far as I would let myself get in the writing. Um, but after I wrote it and after he kind of emerged as a character and was fully formed on the page, then I kind of went back to the day that I had thought. I, I mean, I just really wanted him to be born on April 1st. Mm-hmm you know, the fool and the trickster of April Fool's Day, and also a very dear friend of mine, like one of my oldest closest friends was born on April 1st. So it's kind of a little homage to him. Um, But yeah, after I wrote the character and wrote the whole book, I went back and tried to figure out the rising. And the rising, you know, just in terms of Hellenistic astrology, it's very important because it's the first breath you take in this body. And so, in the birthing rooms um, in ancient Greece, and still now actually in some places in Greece, there's just a rising doula and her whole job is to just watch. This is actually, I learned this from Tina Zavitsanos who comes from a lineage of people who were rising doulas. Um, And they just watch the horizon for this, um, for the, yeah, the moment that
0: that's amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know. In the in the sense of the character Raphael and Anhel, it was also a lot about him being born in 88 cuz the late 80s kids have this Capricorn stellium.
0: Yeah, Jesus, I don't know how they deal with it. <laughs> well, <They> really- <laughs> I really
1: hope, I mean, it gives me hope that they're going to like save us. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to like fix fix the world, you know? Like cuz right now they're kind of having their first sign return uranus Mm. went into taurus so i really hope that they're gonna have the ideas to like you know rethink the structural shit like with climate change with racism everything i really have a lot of hope in in (laughs) this like little generation
0: oh i I don't know (laughs) i've met some of them (laughs) that's like most of my tarot clients um yeah 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 um Yeah, so um, kind of writing the piece, I mean, especially talking about moon signs because it sort of like goes down to the sort of matrilineal um, um, burden and slash gifts. Mm -hmm. Um, When you write about sort of the women in your family, um, I don't know, is there any trepidation there or any sort of feeling or a violation um i mean moon's in the eighth house i know or um they they have a different sort of uh ethical stance than a lot of us um but uh but yeah (laughs) like sort of writing about sort of um the women of your family of your family in, in this way and in this piece um did it ever feel like kind of um
1: like i was like airing dirty laundry
0: not airing dirty laundry so much as um um because that to me has a has a sort of like a casual feeling of it but just exposing something Mm,
1: i don't think so but it kind of reminds me that sometimes i get asked this like if i ever get nervous that i'm being too vulnerable or something in my work And i never feel like that actually because i mean uh, you know i could sad rising i could pontificate about how that's like a patriarchal idea Mm -hmm. that like you're not supposed to talk about what happens in the home what happens in your body what happens in you know your trauma blah 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 but i don't know it just like for me it was always like the most interesting stuff it was also the most present stuff like i was really raised by my aunt and my mom um also, my father—he's um, a Mars in Cancer. He had a very femi kind of air to him. He had long. He he looked he looked beautiful. Like he had very long, like hair as long as mine. He's Korean. He had a Fu Manchu. He would like wear this like long hair. I don't know. Like I, there, to me, like my family. When I think of them, there's very little actually like patriarchy going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like you know broken masculinity which leads to its own kind of trauma. Um, but I never felt like I also feel this is cuz I'm a moon in cancer. Mm-hmm. I also feel like I'm kind of honoring them by telling their stories. I mean, one of the things about my mother is she was an artist. But she she had she never really was able to get her work into the world and so we were like her audience or her you know, viewer. She was a painter. So there's something about that to me that feels really important that I share it. This is such a Cancer Moon thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, like only a Cancer Moon would think this way. It's yeah. like the keeper of the family, the the origin, the ancestry line. You know, you know, comes through Cancer Moon. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah I mean, I have yeah, I have a lot of fourth house stuff, and I'm a Cancer. Uh, so yeah, no, I, it's um. Yeah, and, but I find astrology, especially moon stuff, like so illuminating in the way that it reveals things that um, um, sort of symbolically for the purpose of writing that I couldn't ever get to logically. Yeah,
1: you can't hide your moon. Yeah, And you can't control it either. Yeah. I think that's the main thing. That's why I say like with a client or something, I, I just, if I know the moon, then I know so much. Also, in a certain kind of astrology, which is kind of I practice, the moon is the body. Mm -hmm. So, if you're going to have health problems or issues around any kind of body stuff, it'll come primarily through the moon. Um, It'll just show what happens to your body when you live, when you feel, when you need, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, I mean, to me, like, the other thing about it, in my case, is that my moon and my Mars are above the horizon line in my chart. So that's where the publicness happens is through the moon. Um, like my son is down in the sixth house, just like trying to work, but you know, like, <laughs> but like, you know, very humbly, and just like, do doo do do just doing my little stuff, you know, yeah. but the moon is up there, um, in a way that I think is also, I should say, to so the Greeks, if you're born at night, the moon is stronger for you. Mm. They, they think it's stronger than your sun. Mm. So I'm born at night, and I definitely feel like my moon, also my moon is dignified. I mean, it's in domicile. So it's much stronger than my sun, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Although my moon is kind of unaspected, so I never think of it as being particularly strong or like overwhelming rather than strong. But it's in fucking Virgo. so yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We don't have to talk about that yeah, on the record. On the but. record. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> All right. But it's in the fifth, which is good. Yeah, yeah. That mix of Virgo-Leo stuff is so weird. Uh, Whitney Houston had that. Anyway, so oh, I've been watching you know, the, the Whitney Houston documentary a lot.
1: Well, so Whitney Houston. So the the only kind of contribution that I would ever maybe make to this field of astrology writing is I would love to write a book about Saturn in the 12th house.
0: Yeah, God, please do it. Because know. I
1: have it. Whitney Houston had it. Yeah. Sylvia Plath had it. Virginia Woolf had it. Um, Ob- Obama had it, mm. has it. Um i find like yeah like like the the kind of clustered people that i know of who who have saturn in the 12th house i'm quite fascinated by what has happened to them
0: yeah yeah and i feel like it doesn't get enough sort of i mean in in the astrology materials for some reason it's always like saturn in the fifth house that's it's, it's like oh that, that's the hardest um but yeah in the 12th house it's so much
1: well because i mean to to use critical theory language, the 12th house is really the undercommons, like the Moten and Harney idea of the undercommons. It is like tremendously powerful, but it can't be accessed mm-hmm. in the normative ways. So there's something about it that is like kind of just fundamentally unknowable. And it's also, you know, like the the Hellenistic astrologers don't fuck around. Like they call it the house of evil spirit. Like mm-hmm. it is bad. Yeah. Malice daemon. So it's like- it's just not good. (laughs) And Saturn, the interesting thing, the ancient Greek uh, model of astrology is that planets have a joy uh, in a particular house. It's different than a rulership. Mm -hmm. It's different than dignity or detriment. Um, And having the joy kind of means that they're like, it has to do with the nocturnal and diurnal sect. I'm getting really like technical, (laughs) but Saturn has his joy in the 12th Mm -hmm which really to me speaks volumes. Mars has his joy in the sixth and Saturn has his joy in the 12th. And to me, the 6th 12th axis is the Crip axis. Mm -hmm. So having your greater malefic, having Saturn who literally invented patriarchy in the mythology, like in this house Mm -hmm. where he can rejoice just says a lot to me about what you're in for. Yeah, <laughs> you <fuck>. have this. <laughs> Cuz like I find just my, you know, in my own experience of having it, the only kind of thing reliable about it is that you have to surrender. Mm-hmm. There yeah. are periods in your life where you just have to surrender and you surrender everything. Your selfhood, the discrete concept of who you are, power, ego, agency, blah blah blah. Etc.
0: Yeah. When I read sort of, and it, it's sort of, so it's interesting talking about sort of the 12th house, sixth house stuff, because I, I've read so much, you know, of course, terrible astrology materials on health, where it's yeah. karma or yeah. it's um, something you're attracting to yourself or past life stuff that whatever, um, that it it always comes back around to the idea somehow that it's, that it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Um, and which is sort of echoed in this, um, you know, the sort of goopy new Mm agey health stuff, which is like you, it's somehow within your control. And if you just sort of like think the right thoughts, you'll stop being sick. Um, but yeah, so I'm, when you are sort of like approaching, I guess, is it, I guess, is it the same the approach that you have when you're writing about illness as when you're sort of looking in, into this sort of astrological um, and, and with consultations with your clients? Um, mm. this, yeah.
1: Well, I always tell my clients that I believe in fate, so they need to decide if that's what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean... In Hellenistic astrology, the sixth house and the 12th house are part of the cadent houses, which means they can't really do much. They're in the shadow of something. Um, So you can't really assert a kind of, it's not cardinal. You can't initiate something in there. You just have to kind of cope. And I don't think the idea of coping is bad. Like I don't, I think it's actually a kind of ableist idea to say, well, you shouldn't have to cope. You should be able to thrive. You know, It's like, okay, <laughs> yes, but that's not true for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the things I think is so beautiful about the sixth house actually is it's known as the house of labor and work as well as health and ritual. It's Virgo's house. It's To me, it's one of the most beautiful houses. And it was explained to me once by Tina as saying like, you know, the things that you have to do every day just kind of mundane survival chores mm-hmm. are actually the most magical because they keep you alive. And so to me, like having to manage my chronic illnesses, having to like always have this on my mind is not really a burden. It's actually like a like a kind of a radical presence or something. It's just like, here I am, and this is my capacity, and I have to pay attention to it almost in a way that's like a vigil, like it's a devotion. So, I find that, you know, the first couple of years of dealing with chronic illness stuff, like if you have a before and after in your in your disability, because mm-hmm. um, some people don't, um, a lot of the time the first few years are just trying to like readjust or recalibrate to this idea that you have to pay attention to these things. And, you know, there's a lot of judgment about the limitations that you encounter where you're like, oh, fuck, and I can't do that either. And like, (laughs) ah, you know, and it becomes really painful. But there's something to me, like maybe I'm mysticizing it, but I find it actually really beautiful. It's like, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's very simple actually. Mm -hmm. And just paying attention to it and giving it space is like, oh, okay, that's, that's all right.